0: You're listening to the ikra book festival 2021 bringing you fresh and innovative content in literature and authorship brought to you by the art and Radio ramadan 365 welcome back everybody um just a few short just a few more sessions to go um obviously we've had so many inspiring and amazing discussions so far over the last two days Um, and to do an equally inspiring interview is Saira Dar. Um, Dr. Saira Dar is a GP with an interest in health inequalities, Islamic medical ethics and promoting lifestyle medicine. She's passionate about helping people achieve wellness and advocating for better female representation in religious spaces. She dreams of traveling the world, seeking knowledge, and in the meantime, is very excited about the new remake of West Side Story. All I'd like to say is, who isn't? Okay, so Saira, you take it away. Thank you very much, Aksa. I'm so excited to be speaking to Didi um, coming up next. Uh, But yeah, thank you very much. It's been really great. All the panelists have been fabulous. And, oh, Didi's here. Hi. Good afternoon, Didi. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the Ikra Book Festival 2021. Such I'm an honor it. to be speaking to you, especially now that I've re- I read your book and I loved it.
1: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm really glad to hear it.
0: <laughs> Let me introduce yourself uh, to the audience today and then we'll get stuck in um, with no further ado. So assalamu Alaikum everybody. Didi Fairchild Ruggles is a professor in the Department of Landscape and Architecture at the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. She holds appointments in art history, architecture, medieval studies, Spanish, Portuguese, and gender and women's studies. She is the author and editor of lots of books on Islamic gardens and architectural patronage and heritage, and she's appeared in many television documentaries about Islamic art, and is current art and architecture field editor of the Encyclopedia of Islam and she will be discussing her book The Tree of Pearls which won the Nancy Lapp Popular Book Award which means that not only is it for academics but really for the wider audience and I am a testament to that because it's such an easy read and if I can read it I think lots of people are going to find this a really interesting book if you've not already come across it. The Tree of Pearls, what I loved about it, it, it blends biography with architectural history, with a social history of Cairo, like under really turbulent times when the crusaders were about to attack and the threat was there. And what I loved about it is really a book about leadership, um, which I found really interesting. And our main character is Shajar al have I pronounced that right? Well, it's funny because we want to say Shajarat but medieval Arabic texts, they call her Shajaradur. Sajar al Dul. Okay, but yeah. Okay, okay. Sajar Sajar al Dul. And she rose from being, she was gifted as a slave child to the Sultan at that time, the Ayyubid Sultan Sahli, to being his concubine, to being his wife, and then astonishingly, to being the Sultan how did that happen from slavery to the throne how did that happen so we're really going to get right into it I've got lots of questions to ask about this story I, I would also be happy
1: to read directly from the book if you wish
0: well let's let's start with that then she,
1: that okay start with that and then yeah. and maybe that will generate some questions because uh, her story is quite remarkable I have to say it kind of writes itself so let me start by reading from I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one which is sort of telling us how the story comes to be and then I'll read a little bit from the last chapter, which tells us why it all matters. Okay, so and it's about a five, six minute read. Is that okay? Great, let's go for it. All right, good. So well, few architectural historians have ever heard of Shajar al-Durr. most people in Cairo know who she was. When I told an Egyptian colleague about this book project, she said every person, every taxi driver in Cairo, has heard of the infamous durr Whenever a woman is too bossy toward her husband, they call her Shajadadur. durr whose name means tree of pearls, ruled as the legitimately appointed sultan of Egypt in May, June, and July of 1250, and for seven years after remained a powerful figure at the side of the military commander who then replaced her as sultan. A complex historical figure who broke the mold of correct womanly behavior hers was a rare case of a woman ruler in Islam and in world history. This is, I just wanna stop for a minute and say, she's unusual in the Islamic world, but what we forget is that she's unusual anywhere in the world, right? To have a woman rule was unusual everywhere. In her lifetime, her status changed from slave to wife, regent, widow, and eventually sultan. And her problematic reign marked the shift from the Ayyubid dynasty's rule of Syria and Egypt from the mid 12th to the mid 13th century to rule by the Mamluks. I also have some pictures of her too. May I do a share screen okay. and you what it looks like? Uh, it says it's disabled. So if that could be enabled,
0: I will. I... Admin will be able to allow for that to happen.
1: Let's see if I've got that now. Well, we'll wait for that. Uh, cuz i have some pictures of the tombs just as a kind of
0: yeah i was hoping you would because the tombs themselves are so interesting and they have so no. much significance
1: yeah
0: and they're they're just they survive you know that anything would from even them. even in the cover this is the mosaic pattern in the mihrab from her tomb isn't it and it's got yes. the pearls yes
1: it is her it's her name it's interesting all right well we'll keep going and let me just check one more time to see if they've disabled it no, it's still disabled okay her architectural patronage of two building complexes that combined the civic function of education, which is the madrasa, with the commemorative function of a memorial, which is the tomb, changed the face of Cairo and had a lasting impact on Islamic architecture. I first read about al-Durr 20 years ago in Fatima Mernisi's Forgotten Queens of Islam, a wonderful book in which she excavated historical examples of other woman rulers to show that the Pakistani prime minister, Benazir Bhutto, was not an anomaly among Muslims. I was later reintroduced to Shajar Adur in an insightful essay that compared her unfavorably to her 13th century contemporary, Daifa Khatoum, who ruled she was in Egypt, who ruled as regent for a young grandson. But despite holding a considerable grip on political power in Aleppo, had the good sense not to overstep the proper feminine role. Playing by the rules, Daifa Khatun enjoyed a relatively full life and died of natural causes at about 45 or 50 years of age. But Shajid Adur did not live so long or die as comfortably. At about 35 years of age, she was beaten to death in the bathhouse of the Cairo Citadel in revenge for an equally brutal murder that she had instigated a few days earlier. The woman responsible for al-Durr's violent death was the mother of the heir apparent whose name was Ali and legend has it that she celebrated the Sultan Queen's demise by concocting a sweet known as Om Ali, Mother of Ali. This is something you can buy anytime you go to a cafe
0: in Cairo. They always serve. I wanted to ask you about that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> I have the recipe. Such, a, I'm never going to eat that and not think about the story now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, all right, and now I'm gonna to skip to the end where we sort of talk about why this matters. In assessing Shadjadur's contribution to architectural history, we cannot separate the originality of her buildings from her biography as a woman. She was the first ruler in Islamic Egypt to build her own tomb, a strategy for commemoration that was meaningful under any conditions, and that would have been especially meaningful for a woman seeking a permanent, tangible legacy yet without sons or daughters to pay such tribute to her. The reference to herself as the tree of pearls, and you pointed out the mihrab on the cover of the book, is rendered in mosaic in her mihrab. It was spectacular and surprising, and it was a specifically female strategy on the part of a woman who had had to carefully negotiate the ways in which she could represent herself to the people of Cairo. For a female patron, hidden from the public eye, the building served an especially gendered purpose because it allowed her to become visible in a way that preserved modesty. The mihrab, and that's the image on the book with the tree, with the you know, golden mosaic and the, the pearls. Um, where was I? Ah, the, the mihrab's image of a tree with branched arms evoking without explicitly displaying human form And of course, it displays her name, the Tree of Pearls. Now, a problem that arises in studying Shajirador is that she's been turned into a semi-fictionalized character, a little like Cleopatra. And I have to admit, I've made my own modest contribution to this tradition of romanticization. For in describing the book to others, I invariably lead with Sajid life and move quickly to its singular ending of betrayal, rage, murder, and revenge. And the listener often sighs in remarks that it would make a good Hollywood or Bollywood movie. Indeed, Sajid story has already appeared in Egyptian film and television in versions that infuse the story with modern enthusiasm for feminine heroines and women's achievements. But in writing Shajar Durr's story, I have often struggled with the problem of genre, like how to represent her. Is this biography? Is it art history? Is it a social history? Is it a melodrama? It does matter that the protagonist is a woman, and it may also matter that the storyteller is a woman, because whatever the genre, the thread of gender weaves through all of it. In my lifetime, I have seen the rise and assassination of a female head of a Muslim state in Pakistan, a female imam daring to lead a mixed congregation in New York City and an outcry against her action, the growth of an educated, prosperous middle class in so many areas of the Islamic world, but in others, Muslim girls shot and abducted for simply seeking an education. A form of Islamic feminism has coalesced that finds its strength, not by drawing exclusively on Western models, but by looking within Islam for models of empowered female lives, beginning with the women of the Prophet's own family. These changes in Muslim society and in society as a whole indicate that people around the world are eager for a different kind of story than the one that's so typically told about Muslim women. Shajid Adur's deeds in her lifetime challenged the widely held belief that Muslim women have historically lacked all power and agency, and that they were sequestered, unseen, anonymous, and inconsequential in a world that belonged to men. Their scope was limited. But the examples of Shajid Adur, as well as the other female patrons of architecture in Cairo, Damascus, Aleppo, and elsewhere, also in Yemen, that I describe in the book, demonstrate that women could have an important impact on their social, political, and architectural environments. I believe that our ability to see their consequence depends a great deal on how their stories are told. Okay, that's my excerpt.
0: You picked the bit that I was hoping you would pick to read because it really just summarizes everything so well. I mean, one of the things I wanted to say was reading this book, I'm thinking, this should be a film adaptation. And then you said that yourself that everyone says this to you because you've got you've got the slave become the wife of the Sultan, become the Sultan, which is astonishing. Then the betrayal, vengeance, violence, murder, it's all in there. And I love the fact that in Egypt they did like this film showing out in the open for everyone to see. I wonderful.
1: Place. May, the the person who, her name, name is May Al-Ibarashi, who's done the preservation of the tomb, it's very been beautifully preserved um, in the past 10 years by extraordinary architectural preservationists. She actually, for the community, because she's very community driven, and you know, this is not in the wealthiest neighborhood of Cairo, this tomb where it's built. So she actually screened the, one of these TV dramas on the wall of the tomb itself. And she thought about it she thought maybe this is not such a good idea this is not a good use of a tomb after all but you know where else where else do you find a space to to screen something like that but she said it was very popular in the neighborhood
0: people loved it you know what i, well, I, I mean that is that's so significant The in modern era you're putting this film on the side of her tomb for the public to see the whole time i'm reading this book and i'm thinking she was such an intelligent woman and such an intelligent leader and I wondered how much of that intelligent and strategic ability came from also her husband, the Sultan Sally, who also was a very intelligent leader. But this was not, I mean, like you pointed out, she wasn't like, oh, this is an anomaly. She's a woman leader. But she was actually just a wonderful leader, very intelligent leader who mm-hmm. left her mark in a very intelligent way. One of the first questions, because there's so much I want to kind of explore with you, but one of the first questions I want to ask, what brought you to her story? What inspired you to write about her?
1: I have wanted to write about her for a long, long time. And I also was sort of swept up in the drama of the story initially. And, you know, I'm almost embarrassed. I used to give lectures years ago. I would give a couple of lectures on, on her story and kind of exaggerate her, which is exactly what I criticize when people turn her into a Cleopatra and they kind of fictionalize her. And then I realized, you know, we're, we're allowing our emotions and our kind of, you know, our projections, right, we project onto her. Uh, I was allowing that to kind of sweep me along. And I wanted to do something more historical because, you know, she has a right to have her story told correctly. And uh, I didn't see that there, that existed anywhere. And yet she is written about. She, there's nothing, there's maybe one letter that we have written by her. Uh, for the most part it's all people writing about her but because she becomes such an important figure they do write about her quite a bit and there is a lot written about her she's actually unusual in that she shows up in historical record Uh, you have to go looking for it but it's there so it's possible to tell a more accurate story on the other hand there's an awful lot about her life we don't know like we don't actually know where she comes from we know that if she comes as a slave you know there's this whole system of kind of recruiting, drafting soldiers through the process of slavery, but they get manunited. They get freed in the end. It's a kind of social mechanism that medieval Islam had for incorporating new, fresh individuals into society. It's part of what made it such a vibrant society. So we know that she's part of this kind of trend of welcoming or, or forcing these foreign people into Egypt and Syria, but we don't know exactly where she comes from. So she's there's this kind of mystery about her. You know, where, We know where she ends up, but where does she come from? And it's a kind of rags to riches story that is in some ways very modern, right? We all know of movie stars who come from the farm and end up in Hollywood or wherever, Paris. So yeah. that's how I kind of uh, started getting interested in her.
0: Okay, because you, you mentioned even the taxi drivers in Cairo know her story and they know where the tomb is and you know they can take you there she's obviously a very well known maybe even kind of urban myth type of character in Cairo Um can you tell us a little bit more about how she rose through the ranks from being the sultan's concubine to his wife to the sultan himself and and maybe kind of if talk about her great loyalty to the sultan i mean i really felt maybe i'm romanticizing again but i felt there was a bit of a love story there the fact that she then after her husband passes away builds his tomb in the center in the center of cairo next to the madrasa that sultan Saleh had commissioned that was a very strategic move a very clever move so can you tell us a little bit about how she rose through the ranks so it, it, it's a,
1: this is a rare moment in the history, in medieval history, when we actually know they loved each other, because most of the time you don't know. I mean, these are news of convenience. they nobody expects great romantic love in their lives at that time. It's a kind of myth. But no, these two did. And the way that we know it is that he says, he writes uh, on his deathbed, he writes a, a, a a last will and testament in which he says how much he cares about her and he's written about in the text as loving her dearly and the reason why he loves her is because there's a moment in his own career when he's actually locked up by one of his co- i think it's his cousin or his uncle uh because they're all fighting you know they're the the ayubids they had like the most dysfunctional family ever they were always fighting trying to get damascus trying to get cairo and he's on his way to conquering cairo of, of asserting himself as sultan but he gets uh captured and captivated. I think he's in a prisoner for more than half a year, something like three quarters of a year. And at that time all of his followers desert him. They all think, uh oh, this guy's a goner. We don't want to back him. He's a losing, you know, a losing, uh, a loser. And they go off, and find someone else to follow. She stays with him. She stays with him during that period of captivity, and that's when they have their only child. It's the only child she ever has. Unfortunately, the child doesn't live. must have been, you know, when, when, I, when I kind of imagine her emotional state, which is hard because I don't have anything that tells me in her own words about what she was feeling, but I don't think it takes much humanity to imagine that it must have been terrible Here she's gone through this period of captivity with her husband and then she has this child and of course at that time a child for a woman is the thing that guarantees you a future it is your particularly a son but also a daughter but particularly a son that secures you a place in the world because in your old age the person who's going to take care of you is going to be your children well this child dies as a baby and so by the time the Sultan is freed from captivity and he and Shahadur march into Cairo. It's a triumphant entry into the city. She must have been both, you know, jubilant in that they were successful at last, but also heartbroken in that she had lost a child. And she never had another child. So she's an, an unusual woman in that for an awful lot of women, the road, like in if you look at uh, the Ottomans of Turkey, the way that those women, and they were very powerful women, the way that they got their power was always by fostering the career of their sons. And if their sons are successful, they become very powerful women and advisors to their sons. This is true, in fact, across the world, but uh, she didn't have that. So she's doing this all on her own, not in the name of or with the help of a son. The other thing to point out is that when we think of how men succeed, they start off with an awful lot of pretty good equipment. And, you know, they're, he, the Sultan Salih, that's her husband, is the son of a sultan. So right there, he knows what being like a sultan should look like. He watches his father. He learns from his father. He's trained. He's made a governor of a far-off province. Um, he, he fights in battles. So he he knows the way a sultan is supposed to act and he's trained to be sultan. She's not. She doesn't get any of that training. She comes from nowhere. She comes from absolute poverty. So the thing that gets her that makes her successful early in life is that she was probably beautiful she was probably charming you know think about think away the actresses become famous you know today that you have to be beautiful you have to have, be talented you don't necessarily have to be all that smart <laughs> um although many of them are she it turns out had this hidden intelligence because i think she's watching sally helping him She is his helpmate. She's definitely the one he depends on. After all, he can trust her like he can trust nobody else. So she also, as he depends on her, she learns from him. And he's off fighting the crusaders on the battlefields. Who's at home running the affairs of state? Well, he has some advisors, but one of them is her. They say that she serves as regent. So she has this kind of practice period. Then when she becomes sultan, you know, she's, she's ready for it, although she's still an anomaly. I mean, the other rulers elsewhere in the Islamic world write, there's this famous letter where they write, and say, hey, if you don't have any men, we'll send you. We got, we got sultans here we could send you because this is not right what you're doing. And that's why she's ultimately deposed, not because she fails, but because they realize that this is uh, meeting with too much disapproval
0: elsewhere. She, I mean, she got there to that position because she had allegiance with the sultan's advisors. I mean, they trusted her. They recognised this intelligence. She was clever enough to keep them on her side. Um, you know, When the sultan passes away, she quickly plays the situation to their advantage, her advantage, but also for the protection of Cairo at large. So, you know, because they were under threat, that's really intelligent. We're on this part of the moment making such clever decisions um, and with the right people.
1: You're making a really good point that at the time that I wrote the book, I didn't think of, which is the Sultan trusts her because he loves her, but the advisors trust her. They don't, it's not that they love her. It's that they know that she's intelligent and capable. So when they select her to be sultan, it is for her leadership qualities because she's a loyal companion. So that says something about, I mean, she's made sultan not by the sultan who she married. She's made sultan after he dies.
0: Yeah. And then when she becomes sultan, she does have the legions and loyalty of the Mamluk. I found this really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about this, the Ayubid dynasty and the how the succession happened. It was all about bloodline and the sun or the nearest kind of bloodline that would become the next sultan. But the Mamluks were very different. And what's really interesting is that You could say she was the last of the Ayyubid, they say, but she was actually the first of the Mamluk because the Mamluk came from these freed slaved and that's what she was.
1: It's an interesting thing that happens in modern history where very few historians will credit her with being the first of the Mamluks. Because if you think about it, the last of the Ayyubids, she's a product of her husband. So she's allied with that family. And she was, she was married into that family and served that family. But as the first of the Mamluks, she becomes, you know, the the academic word is progenitor, right? She becomes the mother of a new dynasty, which is a very powerful position. And she's very rarely credited with that. I actually, it's something I get kind of annoyed about when I read it in other historians. She is the first of the Mamluks. Now the Mamluks are different. They're a different kind of dynasty because the dynasty before that, the Ayyubids, was hereditary. So chances were, if you were the son of the sultan, you had a very good chance of being sultan. Usually the oldest, sometimes it wasn't, but it was always a son. So it's family lines. With the Mamluks, these Mamluk uh, rulers, these Mamluk leaders, all came from the army. And they came from an army that consisted of these drafted individuals, boys who were drafted literally into slavery, trained, become very elite military corps. When their training is finished, they are freed. And they're by that point, they've become Muslims. So here you have these people whose loyalty is not to their own families, because they've left them. They don't even know them anymore, but to the state and to the sultan. So these Mamluk leaders are really trained for leadership and for devotion to the state. But the succession, although sometimes it happens father to son, it is not designed to happen that way. Under the Mamluks, it is merit. If you're a good leader and you are, you, know, you can push away all the other contenders, you can become sultan. And of course, that's what happened with her, right? She's
0: not supposed to be sultan. She's not the son of the sultan. Yeah. So, Which is why she should be the first Mamluk leader and be recognized as that. Yeah. And
1: she was a former slave. I mean, Mamluk literally means slave. She was a former slave, as were all Mamluk sultans.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, a little bit more about, oh, what was the question I was going to ask? Yeah, so you've, you've explained the difference between the Ayubid dynasty and the Mamluk dynasty. So can you tell us what happened when she became sultan, being the almost like the first Mamluk she was only Sultan for three months. And like you said, it was because of people outside that there were, you know, there was that threat of losing Damascus because they had this female queen. And um, what did they do then? And then going into the whole revenge and violence, what came after?
1: It gets messy. And also the historical accounts go silent for a little while. So to make the story brief, she became... Um, she is successful. She repels the Crusaders. She stabilizes
0: the government. Um, which, is, which in itself is amazing because at that time she had to stay indoors. She wasn't allowed to come out in public. She wasn't allowed to be the public face. Yet she was able to maneuver all of this from her own room, from these private quarters, which is astonishing.
1: Yes, she has all these advisors who are. I, I don't know what their contact is, right? I don't know if they actually go into her presence or whether she's behind a veil. We don't know that. I would really like to know that. Mm. Uh, but I do have this theory that because she is sequestered and she, for as far as we know, she does not go out marching in public the way men would. She, she is, you know, adheres to this kind of modest behavior. Um, I think that's why they force her to marry. So the person she marries is a military commander. He's not the top guy, but he's he's high up. And I think it's because first of all, you know, women in that time, they're supposed to be married. That's, that's their role in life is to be married, right? So to have her be unmarried seemed weird. Um, and then second of all, what it did is it combined the military function of the state, which she, she could not lead. The truth is she could not take the troops out onto the battlefield. That's an area where she truly was weak. So it combined her political strength with his military um, uh, qualifications. But of course, the minute that happens, he becomes sultan. Although she is there for eight, seven or eight years, we don't hear much of her, but we know she's there. When she marries him, this is a very common contract in Islamic marriage law. The stipulation in the marriage contract is that he will not marry anyone else. You know, she's been sultan; she's not going to be number two to anyone else. Or doesn't she? A-
0: she actually gets
1: him to divorce his first wife as well. Yes, right. He has to divorce his first wife. Yeah, um, so that she'll marry him. And then it happens toward the end of the eight years. He he's doing what he's supposed to do, which is he's supposed to be out there making treaties with neighboring lands. One of the ways of securing a treaty is through political marriage. This was one of the roles that women had was they become these kind of ambassadors. It's, we're not often credited with that role, but that's, that's one of their roles. So he goes after the hand of a princess in a neighboring state. And when Shahjadudur finds out about this, she is livid with anger absolutely angered and so she and of course they the texts do say that they had not been getting along for a long time that it was an uneasy relationship and so she actually kills him she orders she goes into the comes home from playing polo one night and she goes in and uh, with her her attendants and they kill him in the bathtub and then just to close the circle of this and I know we're coming to the end of our hour our half hour and then that first wife who he had divorced the second husband it's complicated she who was still there and had a child with that man she then murders shajadadur so and it's her son who gets put temporarily on the throne in fact it, the dynastic politics become very messy at
0: that point We're so, not- so now you need to now you come to that part of that famous dessert that many of us have tried um ali which is like a bread pudding in Egypt, very common. Tell us (laughs) the gruesome story behind that, where that comes from.
1: Well, so this this spurned first wife who kills Shajid Adur is so happy about it that uh, this is legendary. We don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly she invents this sweet. So it's like celebrating her arrival is gone. Her son is back on the throne, which means she as a woman is now back in power, right? And so she celebrates, supposedly, with this, this sweet dessert. And I included a recipe in the book just because, you know, it's
0: part of the Appendix one, <laughs> why not? <laughs> it's <is> very tasty. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm kind of worried about time and I want to bring this in because your book is very much about the architect, uh, architecture and the tombs that she, she commissions. Tomb that she commissions for her husband, Sultan Sally. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the significance of that? And one of the really interesting things you said is that it was all gendered the, the mausoleum, the madrasa, the mo- everything was in one complex and it was very gendered, but not gendered in the sense that all oh, there's floral motifs everywhere, there's lots of colour. Not gendered in that way, but the motivation behind it was gendered. Can oh, you a can ex- explain a little bit about what that means?
1: So well, there's a huge
0: question, but if you can. Yeah.
1: I, I might not be able to cover the gender part, but the architecture part is important. So, one of the things we have to remember is in the pre modern world, like we're talking, you know, 13th century. One of the, the texts or records that we have is the built environment, which you know, for anyone who's been to Cairo, to the old city of Cairo, knows all those buildings are still there. And they have inscriptions on them. They have images on them. The buildings themselves are communicative. And they tell us a lot about that society. But you have to know how to read it. You have to be able to read the architecture the way you read a poem or the way you read text. So this is what I'm doing is reading the architecture. And one of the interesting things about the architecture is, first of all, the way that the street starts to become embellished with these beautiful building exteriors. Now, you may think, well, what? You know, why is that new and different? Buildings always have an exterior, but they didn't. In the medieval world, buildings had very bare exteriors, and that's because usually the, the wall would be used as the back of a shop, right? Because anytime you have a an important building like a mosque. you know, Everybody's going in and out all the time. What better place to have your perfume stall than right up against the mosque? There's nothing sacrilegious about it at all. So these buildings did not have distinctive exteriors until this moment when suddenly they start to have this kind of ceremonial, uh, stately exterior face. So that when you walk down the street in Cairo, you're walking down a boulevard, you're walking down a street that that says something, and it's all built by the Ayyubid dynasty at that point. So uh, he, her husband Sultan Salih, builds his university there, his madrasa there. And when he dies, this is very unusual. She places his tomb not outside the city in one of the cemeteries, but inside right next to the madrasa. And this is, I always tell my students, this is the equivalent of an endowed chair. So I have an endowed chair where every time I'm introduced, I have to say I am the Deborah Mitchell chair. So Deborah Mitchell, one of our alums, is always present. In my mind, whenever I give something, I give it in the name of Deborah Mitchell because she made it possible for me to do my work. So there's this kind of commemorative function to education. That's exactly what adding the tomb to the college was. It was this moment when his name, his actual body, right, his entombed body, is there in perpetuity, so that anytime anyone used that college, they were using it in the presence of the sultan. It's an amazing uh, move, you know. It's an amazing uh, bringing together of two different ideas, and it's a, a it's a, something that turns commemoration into something much more than just a gravestone off you know, in the exterior of the city, it now becomes part of the vibrant central life of the city, that boulevard with its beautiful facades. Now, Sultan Sali always present. She doesn't, it's yeah. her.
0: It made me think of um, the uh, Taj Mahal in India, for example. You know, the, the, oh. the, the, the yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was just such a strategic and intelligent move for her to do that right next to the madrasa that he had commissioned. Which so a couple of things that I find really interesting about that was that was the first experiment in bringing the four schools of Islamic thought in the one university, the first example of that, and then of, obviously after that that became quite common. And secondly, you point out, and this is to me is really interesting, that mosques were kind of male spaces, you know, very much still, still and but the were you know the, the imams were male there were more kind of male spaces but the tombs were a place of prayer and worship where which were a lot more open and welcoming to women so now you've got yes. these two areas right next to each other I find that really fascinating
1: that I don't know if that could have been planned but yes that's exactly true tombs uh, are much more the realm of women than than madrasas were I want to just say one correction which is that Bringing the four colleges together uh, at the madrasa it's the first time that they had been brought together in that kind of a plan where each one gets its own space. Uh, in Iraq, there we think there was also a madrasa that had four colleges, but this is the first time in Egypt um, and it's the first surviving. It's the only one that survives that we can look at. And even this one doesn't survive 100%, only yeah. part. But it is interesting to think of, you know, when I said the building is a text. Well, you start to read the structure of Islamic law in the plan of the building when you see that there are these four different lecture halls, each one intended for one of the four principal yeah
0: yeah yeah i i also really enjoyed reading about the the kind of the details the architecture of the the mosque and the madrasa with the open windows and kind of almost like the public walking in the streets and shopping they had access to the Quran recitation and the classes that were going on in the madrasa so really very much part of the public civic community at that time, which was, you know, it, it was very interesting to see. And you almost, reading that, I almost feel like I was there and living through that moment. I, I love the way you'd written that.
1: Thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. I have this image in my mind
0: when I, when I
1: walk through a city, um, I'm always walking through it at the time that I'm studying. So when I walk through Cairo, I'm in the year, you know, twelve fifty. Mm i'm thinking away all the taxis i'm thinking away all the modern you know popcorn stands and things like that and i'm thinking what would it have been like to be there in the yes. third century uh and and of course it's still there it's there enough that you can imagine it without much difficulty mm. there and they're so beautiful i mean cairo is an amazing city an amazing architectural gem you
0: know i can't i can't wait to visit it no, because i always feel that i'll have a very different perspective of visiting Cairo and seeing it through almost your eyes and the way you've described it. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, I'm really quite gutted we don't have we've only got like a minute left of of our time together. And so I really I I want to kind of end with saying thank you for writing the story because I really do feel women like myself are looking for representation of Muslim women from our history. That's not doesn't fit that Western kind of ideology of what feminism is or what a modern Muslim woman is like. I mean, at the moment I'm reading cut from this same clause, not about the burqa because there's a need for these voices. So this was amazing. I think I I really find it a fascinating story because for me reading about the Queen of Sheba in the Quran and and God's own words about this fabulous leader and God writes about her in a very complimentary fashion. It's just, it's good to hear that this is not an anomaly in our Islamic history, and there are more of these uh, examples, we just have to look for them a little bit deeper, because unfortunately, there's not enough written about them, generally speaking.
1: We need to pay attention. I think it's our own sexist customs that keep us blind to all those moments in the past when women shone.
0: Mm. Thank you very much, much, Didi. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the Ikra Book Festival 2021. For more podcasts, search for RR365 wherever you get your podcasts.